Did you ever have this kind of experience when you were a kid in school? One of your classmates did something bad. Breaking a significant rule, stealing something from the teacher's desk, destroying something important in the classroom, or something similar. The teacher didn't know who had done this evil deed, and no one was fessing up. So the teacher said the whole class was going to be punished unless you ratted out the kid who did the bad thing. Well, if you are a card-carrying member of the kid kingdom, you know that you don't tell on your buddies. So no one said a word about who did the deed. And as a result, you were all punished. You all had to stay in a recess or some other unbearable thing. You all suffered the consequences of the one person's sin. Now, some would argue that the way the teacher handled the situation wasn't fair. The guilty person should have been the only one punished. Others might counter that argument saying that the whole class shared in the guilt because you wouldn't reveal the guilty one. You chose loyalty to your classmate over loyalty to the teacher and to the rules. Well, whatever your particular position is on that, we as human beings are sharing in the consequences of one person's sin, Adam's sin. As a representative of the whole human race, his sin and its consequences are shared by all of us. We didn't have a lot of choice in the matter, but we do have the choice now of sharing in what Jesus Christ has done and its consequences. By way of review, Paul has led us down into the depths of human depravity and up into the heights of God's mercy so far in the letter of Romans. He's shown us the universal extent of human sin and our guilt before God. And he has also shown us the amazing mercy and kindness of God, offering us full pardon, justifying us and removing our guilt when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in what he has done for us through his death and his resurrection. Now today, in the passage that we're going to be looking at, Paul compares and contrasts Adam, the first human being, and Jesus Christ, the incarnate human being. Adam's sin and its ruinous consequences suffered by all who have come after him is compared and contrasted with the obedience and the sacrificial giving of Jesus Christ and what has been accomplished for us by him. So turn over to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 12. Romans 5 verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Therefore, he begins, considering both the universal condemnation of all people, Romans 1.18 through 3.20, which we have looked at, and the open invitation to all people to receive justification and salvation by faith, Romans 3.21 through 5.11, those are the two big things that we have looked at so far. Paul now draws a comparison between Adam and Jesus. Paul begins by recalling the devastating impact that Adam's actions have had on every person who has come after him. 
Just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. The story Paul's referring to begins in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, and it has been the human story ever since. Before the fall of humanity took place, Adam and Eve enjoyed a beautiful, unbroken relationship with God, with one another, and with the rest of the creation around them. Nature was a friend. There was no fighting between people. Selfishness was not a driving force behind human activity. There was no sense of aloneness in us. We didn't feel guilty. We didn't have a heart full of unfulfilled desire. We felt completely at peace with ourselves and everyone and everything around us. We knew God personally and were able to talk with Him face to face as a friend. And death was something that we knew nothing about. I mean, can you imagine if that were our reality? Adam and Eve had unbelievable freedom to enjoy the paradise that the Lord had created for them. There was a single tree, though, in the Garden of Eden that the Lord told them not to eat from, and He warned them that if they did, they would die. This tree, it represented a covenant of trust and love between the Lord and Adam and Eve. The tree was like a closed door with a sign on it that read, If you love me, you will obey me. Trust me to decide what is good for you. And isn't trust the essence of obedience? I mean, when we are being asked to obey the Lord, we are being asked to trust Him that he knows better than we do what is best for us. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve chose to disobey the Lord, to not trust him to decide what was best for them. And sin entered into this world in that moment, and it broke everything. Their relationship with God was broken. Their relationship with each other was broken. Their relationship with the rest of the creation was broken. Paradise was lost. And there has been death and conflict and disease and selfishness and injustice and cruelty and heartbreak ever since. People ask, what's wrong with the world? The answer is, we are. And so, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Although Adam and Eve wouldn't die for a number of years after the committing of that first sin, the seed of death was planted at that moment of disobedience, and it has been passed on to their descendants. Adam and Eve not only died physically, but they also died spiritually, which is separation from God. At that moment, God and humans turned in different directions. Humans followed their own self-made path, And it has led us further and further into the life described in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. The world we are living in now has little resemblance to the world that the Lord intended for us. We have a sinful nature which has has been passed on to us by our ancestor. And we have acted in similar ways to our ancestor, choosing to follow our own will rather than God's will. We are born into sin, and we have chosen to sin. We have inherited 
Adam's damage, and we have also chosen to walk in his footsteps. We share in his guilt, and we are guilty ourselves. Verse 13, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. In other words, people were obviously sinning before the law of God was given through Moses. But a lot of sin was undefined, so to speak, before the law, meaning there were no particular stated commandments being broken. Even so, death reigned from Adam onward as a consequence of sin, even for people who didn't technically break a particular command like Adam did. Now, a quick note of clarification here. The law, the law of God given through Moses, the law does not need to state that something is a sin for something to be a sin. Right, we we all know that, I hope. The law does not need to state that something is a sin for something to be a sin. Sin is more pervasive than simply the breaking of particular commandments. Sin exists regardless of whether there are commandments to define and identify sin or not. So in verse 15 through 17, Adam and Jesus Christ are compared and they're contrasted, and there are three pairs given here in these three verses. Verse 15 is the first pair, and Paul writes this, he says, but the gift is not like the trespass, For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, referring to Adam's sin, his trespass of God's command, and the consequences of that trespass, that many died, death has come to all people, we all die. And he says, how much more? Comparing that, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ is of infinitely greater good and effective at accomplishing its intent than what the sin of Adam has done to us. The grace of God in Jesus Christ, it transforms forms for eternity, the life and destiny of those who turn to him in faith. The second pair is verse 16. It says, Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Adam's sin brought judgment and condemnation upon himself and all people who have come after him. Now, we talked about this a moment ago, but uh, I will mention this again, that Adam's sin has impacted us and our world in profound ways, but his sin does not excuse our own sin. We have each brought judgment and condemnation upon ourselves through our own sin. 
We're not just condemned because of the sin that we have inherited from Adam. We share guilt with him, not simply because of him. There can be no passing of the blame from ourselves onto Adam. You say, well, you know, I mean, I'd be good to go if it wasn't for Adam. Like, really? I don't think so. See, that would be dishonest and self-delusional on our part for us to try to make that claim. Now, the second part of this pair is, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. In contrast to the devastation that followed the one sin of Adam, the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ followed many trespasses. The response of God to the multitude of sins committed by the human race is the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, through whom comes justification by faith. Now the third pair is verse 17. It says, For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, the, the reign of death was set into motion by the sin of the one man, Adam, sin with death as its consequences, entered our world through Adam. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the world is a place of cemeteries because of it. And how gruesomely true that is. Death has the final say in this life, but that is not true for those in Christ because we have the second half of this comparison, verse 17, where it says, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? What we receive as a gift from God in Jesus far exceeds what we suffer under sin. Even as we continue to struggle under the tyranny of sin and death in this life, we have been given the first fruits of our new life in Christ, having a hope that doesn't disappoint, as we talked about last time, but instead is recharacterizes, it's recharacterizing everything in our life. Even our sufferings have been changed to good purpose. And so it can be said about us that we reign in life through Jesus Christ. John Stott wrote this, formerly, formerly, death was our king, and we were slaves under its totalitarian tyranny. What Christ has done for us is not just to exchange death's kingdom for the much more gentle kingdom of life, while leaving us in the position of subjects, instead he delivers us from the rule of death so radically as to enable us to change places with it and rule over it or reign in life. We become kings and queens sharing the kingship of Christ with even death under our feet now and one day to be destroyed." Amen and hallelujah, yes. And so, verse 18. 
Paul picks up the thought that he began in verse 12, comparing Adam and Jesus and what amounts to a summarizing and a restating of what he has said in verses 12 through 17. He says in verse 18, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. There is one trespass being compared to one righteous act, and condemnation is being compared to justification and life. And then in verse 19, it says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. So disobedience is compared to obedience, and many were made sinners is compared to many will be made righteous. In the same way that Adam has shared his worst with us, so Jesus has shared his best with us. Now I want to make one clarification here for us. Paul is not teaching universal salvation of the entire human race, even though verse 18 may appear to imply that. When it says, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. It's vitally important that when we are reading and studying the Bible that we keep all of Scripture in mind to determine the meaning rather than simply look at individual verses on their own. That can get us in trouble. Think of it like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. Every piece of the puzzle needs to fit into the whole picture. None of the pieces are intended to sit alone and form their own little picture. And in a similar way, all of the various pieces of Scripture are intended to fit into the larger picture. And we use the context of the whole of Scripture to understand what individual pieces can and can't mean. So in the case we're looking at here, we know just in the larger context of the letter of Romans itself that Paul is not teaching universal salvation for all people. He makes it very clear that those who are saved are those who put faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. This is repeated many times in this letter. Now someone might ask, well, why doesn't he just say that here too then if that's what he means? Because that would make for a very verbose and awful letter to have to read. If Paul were to qualify every sentence with a full explanation of the gospel, can you imagine what it would be like to read and how long of a letter it would end up being? As it is, Paul repeats himself and restates himself and qualifies himself many times in this letter. A good dose of common sense is quite helpful when reading the Bible. It's a good rule. Don't put your brain somewhere else when you're reading the Bible. Use your brain. It, it, it's a good organ for us to use. It's real handy. It's just right there. 
You, you won't misplace it. You won't leave it behind. It's just right there all the time. You just like quickly, just immediately begin using it. Verses 20 and 21. If righteousness is by faith, then where does the law fit into the picture? And this is what Paul begins to address in these final verses of Romans chapter 5. And he will continue to talk about this issue in the next couple of chapters, actually. But here in these two verses, he begins by saying, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he begins with this statement that might sound a little odd. He says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Paul has already said a similar thing, though, in Romans 3.20, when he wrote, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The, the law helps us to see sin in ourselves, and it presses home to us our inability to live up to the righteousness of holy God. Paul will also say a similar thing in Romans 7, 7, when he will say, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. The law defines or it describes sin for us. Using Paul's example of coveting, we can be coveting our neighbor's possessions, but without the law naming this thing that we're doing as a sin, we would not have known that. Now, the law did not cause us to covet our neighbor's possessions. We were doing that without the law. But it identified this thing that we were doing. It gave it a name. And it told us what we were doing is a sin. So referring back to Paul's statement in verse 20 here, that the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, he's saying that our sinful behavior was certainly always present, but when the law came, what we were doing was identified as sin. And in this way, sin increased. All of this unnamed awful behavior was now named and seen everywhere. In Romans 7, Paul will also say that the law provokes us to sin, arouses us to sin, which also increases sin. And so we now know better that the law has identified what sin is, so we know what sin is, but we still continue to sin and as a result, our accountability and our guilt have also increased, see? The consequence of this sin is death, judgment, and condemnation. Left to ourselves, we're lost and we're separated from God. But as we've said before, this is not the end of the story for us. God has intervened on our behalf through Jesus Christ, His Son, to rescue us from this hopeless fate. 
And so we have the rest of this verse. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have not been abandoned by God. Instead of letting sin increase and death to reign unchallenged, His grace increased all the more, overcoming sin and death. Another way of translating grace increased all the more is grace superabounded. It was hyper-increased. It was exceeding overabundance of grace brought to bear. So where death once reigned, now grace reigns bringing eternal life through Jesus Christ. I want to close with the words of Paul that he writes to the believers in Corinth over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 45. I think this provides a wonderful conclusion for what we have read today. It pulls a lot of this, these ideas together and it, and it brings it to conclusion for us. Where he writes, So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Are you a believer? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you given up on your own attempts at justifying yourself to God and embraced the justification that He offers you if you will trust in His Son Jesus rather than trusting in yourself? You can begin a new life with all of the amazing stuff that we have talked about today. Let's bow our heads and you can pray this prayer with me. God, forgive me for my sin and the way I've lived my life. 
I need your grace. I believe Jesus died as a sacrifice for my sins and came back to life to give me eternal life. Lord, I want your life to reign in me. I want the character of Jesus to grow in me. I'm trusting in you from now on and not in myself. Beginning now, I am a follower of Jesus. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, you have become a child of God. And all of this amazing promise that we have read about in Romans is now yours. And Father, I, I pray for all of us here today that you would encourage us and strengthen us in our faith today. Lord, that our hearts would be lifted up with praise at the amazing things that you have done for us through Jesus Christ. Death itself has been swallowed up, and we have the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray these things. Amen.